A couple weeks ago at the dinner table, my little girl Sarah uh, got real serious all of a sudden, put down her fork and with her big blue eyes, beautiful blue eyes, she looked over at me and she said, Dad, this is really serious. I said, okay, what do you want to tell me? She says, I want you to know that you are the best daddy in our family. <laughs> well, let's turn together to Genesis chapter 44. Today is not only Father's Day, it's also the first day of summer. Officially, anyway. Summer began for me back in March when I had to mow my yard for the first time. But uh, if you've been reading the paper, you see an incredible drought we have. I know South and Central Texas have an incredible drought. We've had a little bit of rain up here, but even still, Texas is they anticipate that we're going to lose about $517 million as far as agricultural profits because of our lack of rain. And we, don't, we can't really appreciate that when we turn our faucet on, water comes out. Uh, two years ago when we had that bad drought in 96, uh, you know, every time I turned the faucet on, water came out. And so I didn't really experience much. Maybe paid a little more for my vegetables and stuff, but... Uh, we don't really know what it's like to go through a, a drought like farmers do or like people 100 years ago plus who primarily were an agricultural society. Farmers today understand it uh, very clearly. They're going to lose money this year. Be lucky if they break even in Texas. Well, in Joseph's time, the famine that they went through was nothing more than a drought. That's all a famine is. is uh, an extended period of time where there's no rain and then when there's no rain, there's no food. There's no food. Well, obvious implications from that. And so Joseph's brothers, if you've been with us in the series, you know that they've gone down to Egypt where there is grain. And lo and behold, uh, their brother Joseph is the ruler of all Egypt. But they don't recognize him. They sold him into slavery 22 years ago. They figure he's dead. They don't recognize that he is the very one who's selling them the grain. And he tells them, he, I mean, he understands that they have been ruthless men, and so he wants to test them to see if they want to change, if they have changed or if they're willing to change. And so he tests them by saying, go back and get your youngest brother and bring him down. Now, the reason the youngest brother didn't come down the first time is because he was the favorite son of the father. The father didn't want to let him go. So when the brothers went and told him, the father didn't want to let the son go. Finally, hunger made him let the little brother go so that they could buy grain. And so we saw last week that they came down with the little brother, Benjamin, and Joseph tested them in two ways. First, he tested them in their honesty. He had returned the money in their sacks that they had bought the grain. Well, they gave the money back, so they passed that test. Tested them in the area of jealousy. Uh, gave the youngest son five times as much as he gave everybody else. And yet everybody else, all the other brothers, were able to eat and drink freely. We saw last week that they passed two tests that they failed 22 years earlier with Joseph. That of honesty, and that of uh, jealousy. But the test is the test that we're going to look at today, that of loyalty, where they, for the sake of getting rid of an irritation, they got rid of their brother Joseph 22 years earlier, and now they've come full circle and have the opportunity, second chance at sin, to get rid of the little brother Benjamin, who is the favorite son. 
So, Joseph is going to spring this trap on him. First, he sets it up. Chapter 44, look at verse 1. Then he commanded his house stewards, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they could carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. You've heard this before. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph had told him. As soon as it was light, the men were sent away, they with their donkeys. They had just gone out of the city and were not far off when Joseph said to his house steward, Up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and which he indeed uses for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. So Joseph basically plants some evidence he intends to find. And some people look at this and say, well, that's cruel. Well, Joseph is cruel. No, I don't think it's cruel. I think it's got a sense of humor. You got the, Joseph's got the heart of a boy here. He's planning for a dramatic ending. And I bet that he and the steward had a pretty good chuckle in setting this up. When he gets to him, he says, I want you to speak real harsh to him. You know, make him scared. Ask him, why are you repaying evil for good? And that statement, that question by itself, kind of has a double meaning. Because, I mean, he, he's implying, first of all, about the cup that was supposed to be stolen, that Benjamin, the youngest, was planted in his bag. Why have you paid evil for good? We've been good to you and you've stolen this cup. But also, that question might have taken them back a ways. Where Joseph has never been anything but good to his brothers. And he asked the question, why have you repaid evil for good? Because we're going to see that they are indeed convicted for what they've done, but not because of the cup. Now, this cup, by the way, he says, is this the one I use for divination? Now, I don't think Joseph used it for that. I think he was just playing the part of an Egyptian ruler, trying to scare him. Well, what an Egyptian ruler would do with, their, with this silver cup, uh, what he would put liquid in it, some wine or water or something, and hold it up to the light, and, and they would uh, be able to decipher allegedly, some kind of an omen or foretell the future uh, through divination. I saw a lonesome dove. If you saw that, uh, Augustus McRae spit in a wagon to try to determine whether or not he would get married again. So uh, you got to give that a shot and see uh, if you think it would work. Well, you know, how do you, how do you determine that kind of thing? A divination is silly. And I don't think, and Joseph, I'm you know, pretty confident that he, he's not doing this, that he said that to play the part and to scare them into thinking this is an important cup that you've stolen. And so this, he sets the trap up and he tells him to go and to overtake them. So look at verse 6 as now he springs the trap on them. So he overtook them and spoke these words to them and, and they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. So he said, Now let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and the rest of you shall be innocent." Then they hurried. Each man lowered his sack to the ground. Each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes. And when each man had loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. 
they were appalled that they would be accused of stealing. In fact, they went so far as to say they were so innocent, they brought the money back, they'd already passed the test of honesty, and here you go again claiming that not only were spies, but were thieves. And he, uh, he said, they're so confident that he says, well, if you find uh, the cup that you say that uh, we've stolen, whoever has it, let him die. They're so confident that they're innocent that they make this rash vow that's going to incriminate Benjamin, which is exactly what Joseph had planned. And they start with the oldest, and you know this was just the tension mounting. But think about it, when they opened up the, uh, the sacks, what is the first thing that they find? They find money that's not theirs. And so the, the steward, you know, had the opportunity to say, oh, so you didn't steal anything, huh? And, the, of course, the brothers would say st something like, well, you know, this is just like the last time. We don't know how this money got in here. He said, but look, there's no cup. And he went down, ten brothers, from the oldest all the way down. See, there's no cup. See, there's no cup. And get down to Benjamin. And the cup is found in Benjamin's cup. Now, remember who Benjamin is. Benjamin is the favorite son of the father now. He is the one whose life, who, the father's life is bound up in this son. He is the one of whom Judah, we saw last week, convinced the father to go down saying, put him in my care. If anything happens to, the, to him, you can blame me forever. And he is also the one whom they've just made that rash vow regarding that he should die. The servant, though, the, the, the steward changed it, said, no, he just... He shall be a slave, and the rest of you can go free. Well, they load up their donkeys, and now they head back into the city to get their sentence from Joseph. And you kind of wonder what they were thinking. The, the feeling of helplessness that they had to have been feeling. And Judah, knowing he promised his dad, everything's going to be okay, just put him in my care. And now he's going to be a slave. Imagine how Judah felt. Imagine how Benjamin felt. You know, this, this poor guy hadn't done anything wrong. You don't see him doing anything wrong in this whole narrative. And yet he is the one, out of all these crooked brothers, that's going to be the slave. And these crooked brothers knew that. This was injustice. They knew that. So here they ride back into the city now. Look at verse 14 now as they come up back in Joseph's house. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell to the ground before him. And Joseph said to them, what is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? So Judah said, What can we say to my Lord, and what can we speak? And how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. But he, meaning Joseph, said, Far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. It's amazing to me how the paragraph before this, they were so adamant about how innocent they were. And now in this paragraph, they're saying that the Lord has found out the iniquity of your servants. Isn't that interesting? They ask, uh, excuse me, do we have the lights at half-mast, Jerry? They're really buzzing. Okay, something's buzzing. 
They first of all say that they're innocent, and uh, then they say that they're guilty. Well, they didn't steal the cup. They're not guilty. They knew they weren't guilty. What were they saying they were guilty of? Nothing to do with the cup. Nothing to do with this trip. In fact, nothing to do with anything in, in this whole, this part of the narrative. They were talking about what they did 22 years ago. Because notice they don't include Benjamin. They say, we will be your slaves. We and the one in whose sack the, the cup was found. They're saying, we're the ones. Because of our iniquity, this is happening. So they, so they realize they're innocent of this, but they're guilty of something else in the past that they've never been punished for. And they say that now God is doing this to us. So while it's unjust, the particular accusation, they look at it as completely just, and they say, we'll all be your slaves. And Joseph, and again, this is his plan, he says, no, 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 that's not right. You can't all be my slaves, just the one who stole the cup, just, this, just the young one here, he's the one I want. Just the favorite son. Joseph knew very well what he was saying. He was putting them in a position to have a second chance to be disloyal to a brother. A second chance to send a brother off to slavery to get rid of the favorite brother so that they could go up to their father in peace. And yet they knew darn good and well they couldn't go up to their father in peace. The father would die. And Joseph knew this. I mean, he knew exactly what he was saying. He took that knife and he was just turning it three or four times after he stuck it in. You know, it's one thing to admit that you're wrong. It's another thing to have a life that changes as a result of mentioning that. Joseph knew this. So he says, uh, Benjamin, the young one's going to be the slave. The rest of you go. He's testing them. What are you going to do? Yes, God has found out your iniquity, but what are you going to do about it? Are you going to repent or are you going to repeat the sin? Are you going to repeat the sin or are you going to repent? So here's their chance. Are they going to take it or are they going to do something different? Look at verse 18. Judah. Then Judah approached him and said, Oh, my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears and do not be angry with your servant for you are equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead, so he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. You said to your servants, however, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. Thus it came about, uh, as we went up, when we went up to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord, and our father said, go back, buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn in pieces, and I have not seen him since. And if you take this one also from me, and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will come about that when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. 
Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant our father down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord. And let the lad go up with his brothers, for how can I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest I see the evil that would overtake my father? This is the finest thing that Judah has ever said. It's been said, in fact, of this appeal, that it's one of the finest appeals ever written in literature. Not just in the Bible, but in literature, period. They're down on their faces, all of them, before Joseph, realizing that they don't have anything to bargain with. Joseph's got them right where he wants them. The only thing they have is the opportunity to go scot-free if they will abandon their brother. The exact same situation as 22 years ago. And Judah approaches him and says, No, I don't want it to happen again. They were given a second chance at sin. And out of Judah's statements here, we get our lessons. Because you and I are giving these same opportunities. And sometimes it is incredible. The same situations that God will put us in, we'll find ourselves dealing with the exact same opportunities. To either do what's right or do what's wrong. The first thing that I see is that a truly repentant, the truly repentant person will choose differently when given a second chance at sin. Truly repentant person will choose differently when given the second chance. If you look at what Judas said 22 years ago in the story, Genesis 37, Judas said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. The same guy said that. Let's sell him as a slave. And now the same man, 22 years later, on his knees with tears in his eyes, says, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. Isn't it incredible what pain can do as an instructor? In my own life, I know of nothing else other than the pain that I've felt in my heart over sin that I've committed that has convinced me I don't ever want to walk down that road again. There is nothing more instructive or motivating, I should say, than pain. Obviously, God's Word is very instructive and gives us guidance if we'll heed it, if we'll do it. But when we don't, pain is a very good substitute teacher. You see Judah not willing, not necessarily for himself to go through the pain again. It's not that. He's talking about the pain of his brother Benjamin. Because remember, he, he, he thought about the pain he'd done to Joseph when they, said, when they told one another, we ignored him when he called out to us, his pleadings for us. We saw the distress of his soul and we didn't listen to him. So they don't want to, he doesn't want to repeat that now with Benjamin. He saw the pain in his father when Joseph was taken away. He doesn't want to repeat that. In fact, that's the whole basis of his appeal. 
he appeals to Joseph on the basis of areas he has failed in the past. He says, I've failed my brother before. I don't want to do that again. I failed my father before. I don't want to do that again because I've seen the pain that's come from that. So he says, instead, take me. And undoubtedly, as he's there on his knees with tears streaming down his cheeks, he is appealing to a man he doesn't know for all he knows. He doesn't know this guy. He's a ruler. He says he's equal to Pharaoh. At the snap of his fingers, Joseph could have them all killed. He has nothing to do but appeal to the guy's emotions, to appeal to his humanity. Notice that what he, what he appeals on the basis of, of, a, of an old man who's going to die sad because he loses his son. The only son of a dead wife. He appeals to him on the basis of human emotion. Not on the basis of his innocence. He's guilty. He says he's guilty. And he pleads to be the substitute for the one who was charged as guilty. Judah has changed. And by implication, all the brothers have changed. Because he speaks for them and says, we're all willing to be slaves. And then Judah asks particularly that he stay. You know, each one of us can look back at mistakes that we've made. Some of them blunders. Some of them we still have the scars in our life, in our kids' lives. Uh, and we would love to be able to go back and change them, having learned what we've learned from the pain of it. But we can't. We can't go back and change the past. But I tell you one wonderful thing about pain in the past is that it can convince you that you don't ever want to do that again. It can convince you that while you made mistakes in the past, you don't have to make that same mistake again. The memory of the pain, the scars that you bear on your body and in your heart are wonderful things to be able to keep. It's, I think it's a wonderful illustration of physical scars when we can look and remember the pain. When you think about a similar circumstance, you can look in your heart at the scars and remember the pain. And that can motivate you. Say, Lord, I did it wrong the first time. I don't ever want to walk down that road again. When given the second chance, a truly repentant person is, is going to make a different choice. You know, the word repent is not a popular word today. You kind of get the idea of a, of a big, husky, overweight, uh, perspiring preacher in a three-piece suit shaking his diamond-studded finger at you saying, Repent! That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I ought to do that more often. That's the idea you get with the word repent. It's not a popular word. Actually, it's a very good word. It's a, obviously, it's a very biblical word, but it is a good word. Because in the New Testament, the word that's used for repent always means that you change your mind for something good. It's always what it means. In fact, literally, the word repent means to change your mind in the way that it's used in the New Testament change your mind. It's not talking about changing your actions. It's talking about changing your mind. That's why when you're called on to uh, believe in the Lord Jesus, repentance is part of that because repentance is part of believing. It's changing your mind. Now I think that logically when you change your mind, you're going to change your actions. But you're getting the cart before the horse to say that you know, you've got to get your life together, for example, before you can come to God. You can't get your life together before you come to God. You've got to repent First, you've got to change your mind. 
And that's all of what believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is, realizing, hey, I'm a sinner, and I can't get into heaven by my own good works. Because God's standard for heaven is perfection. So what do you do? You have to repent. You have to change your mind. You quit focusing on yourself and thinking, well, I've got to be good enough. You can't be good enough. You repent. You change your mind. Change your way of thinking. I'm not trusting in myself. I'm trusting in what the Lord Jesus did when he died on the cross to pay for all my sins. That's what repentance means. It means to change your mind. And once that is done, once you have repented, once you've changed your mind, your, your actions are going to change. If, if your mind has really changed, your actions are going to change. That's the way it is. So don't be surprised if you say you've repented, like Judas said he's repented, that God doesn't place you in the exact same circumstance, whereas before you blew it, you have another opportunity. You have a second chance now at sin. I have a second chance to prove that you've repented, to see that you, if you really have. What attitude do we need to grasp in order to have our actions really change? Our attitude and then our actions. What attitude helps our actions to change? This last point, and I tell you what, if you grasp this and you apply this to your life, you will walk out of here a much better person, a much happier person. And that is there is no peace without self-sacrificing loyalty. Joseph had the gall, and he knew it, to say, go up in peace to your father. There was no peace going up to the father without Benjamin. It required a sacrifice. It required somebody to go in place, to, to stay in place of Benjamin. And then, of course, Judah's response, I won't read the whole thing, but at the very end he says, how can I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest I see the evil that would overtake him? Joseph says, go up in peace to your father. Judah says, how can I go up in peace to my father without the youngest son? It requires sacrifice. You may have read in the paper this week, I find it pretty humorous personally, Dennis Rodman, he offered you know, to pay the funeral expenses of that hitchhiker who was killed. And what was so funny about it, well, let me read you what he said. This, this is, these are his words. He says, quote, A lot of people don't give me credit for doing a lot of good things around the country, so I have to do something like this so people will recognize the good side of Dennis Rodman. Isn't that what he doesn't get, I guess, is that he tips his hand that he's not really doing something good. What he's doing is something good in order so everybody will think good things about him. That's not sacrifice. That's an investment. Sacrifice is like what Judah did. Giving his life. Being willing to give. Expecting that there may be no return on this investment. I am convinced that in this life, you cannot really begin to enjoy it until you realize that relationships are, the, are what make life enjoyable. Relationships. It's people that make life enjoyable. And what makes your relationships enjoyable? Peace. Uh, a marriage that doesn't have peace, there ain't a thing enjoyable about that. It's terrible. Rather not be married. 
If, and, and there's no peace without self-sacrificing loyalty. So it's an incredible paradox. In order to really enjoy the life as, as God designed it to be enjoyed, you've got to be willing to self-sacrifice. You've got to be willing to give. I heard a cute little story about a kid, a little boy who uh, dropped a penny accidentally into a vase. So he stuck his hand, wiggled his hand out inside the vase to get his penny, and he, he got his hand stuck. Couldn't get it out. Came and showed his dad the vase on his arm. The dad put uh, oil all around it, put soap all around it to try to get it to slide out, and it wouldn't come out. He says, well, son, I think we're going to need to break the vase. And the son goes, no, 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 no. He says, why don't I just let go of this penny? And hand popped right out. You know, I see that we do the very same things. Hanging on to a penny, we're willing to break a vase. Things in our life that are so valuable, we put them in jeopardy for the sake of that little insignificant thing that doesn't have a lot of value, but we ain't going to let go of it. So you, the vase has got to break, or whatever it is that's of more value. And generally, that's relationships, because that is what is most valuable in this life. It's people. There is no peace. There are no good relationships without a willingness to sacrifice. In every facet of human relationships of value that you have, in the workplace, the co-workers around you, if you aren't willing to sacrifice and to give a little bit, there isn't going to be a job that's going to be happy for you. If in your family, this is an easy one to apply, if there's not sacrifice there with your spouse, with your kids, with your parents, if you're not willing to give, if you're always having to get, always have to be your way, there's not going to be peace in your house without a mutual willingness to sacrifice. In the church, it's the same way. Without sacrifice, there's no peace. Now, I'm not talking about being willing to compromise Integrity. I'm not talking about bending moral rules in order to have peace. Okay? I'm not talking about taking the Bible and punting it as the ecumenical movement has done. You punt doctrine for the sake of unity. No. It's not unity at all costs. It's not peace at all costs. There are all some, some things worth fighting for. But I'm talking about the, your preferences that you, want to sac that you need to sacrifice or your passions. Even your passions. You mean to sacrifice. You don't think Judah had a life back in Canaan? He had kids. He had a wife. He had a family. He had, he had stuff to do there. And yet he was willing to give all of that up for the sake of doing what's right. There is no peace in relationships without sacrifice. Jesus said it this way, Greater love has no one than this than one lay down his life for his friends. So what if I'm given that second chance? And what if I stumble? What if I fall? Do you know that the only reason that we have peace with God, the New Testament tells us, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. The only reason we have peace with God is because of sacrifice. Even our relationship with God required sacrifice. On His part, the Lord Jesus to die for us, how much more so when sinners deal with one another do we need to sacrifice? There is no greater love 
than being willing to lay down your life. It's that kind of love a husband has said in Ephesians 5, be willing to die for his wife. Willing to die for her, but not willing to suck up his pride and apologize. There are a lot of things that come before being willing to die. It's that way in relationships. If there's no sacrifice, there's no peace. You say, well, Wayne, if I accept that, if I am willing to, okay, to sacrifice some of my preferences, maybe even some of my passions, to let go of that penny so that we can have the vase, then I am facing a life of mental incarceration. Initially, it may look like that, coming out of a life of selfishness. It's going to look like that. But I'll tell you what, given some time and some consistency, you're going to see relationships improve. You're going to see a marriage you thought would never work out, work out. You're going to see rebellious kids you thought would never come around, come around. You're going to see relationships with your parents, uh, even as in their, they are elderly, and you've never been at peace with them, if you begin to realize that self-sacrifice is what brings peace in any relationship, you will begin eventually to see the fruit and to begin to really enjoy life as God intended it to be enjoyed. But not without sacrifice. Judah knew that. From the tribe of Judah came the Lord Jesus, the Lion of Judah, who knew that. It takes sacrifice. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you this morning and thank you that you are our Father, that we can call you Father. Not because we are your, your children in the strictest sense of the word. Only Jesus is your Son. But we are adopted. We are grafted in because the Lord Jesus sacrificed on our behalf, paid for all our sins. Therefore, we can be sons and daughters of the Most High God. Thank you. And I pray for the one who is here and seeking to have a righteousness of their own before you. Lord, may they repent, change their mind, place their faith in the Lord Jesus. And as we walk through this life and we sin and we sin again and again, may we learn from our pain that obedience and sacrifice is the road to peace, true peace that we're seeking through selfishness. May we seek it through obedience. And may we enjoy life as you intended it to be enjoyed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you. Happy Father's Day.